Well, here's a topical quote to start us off this morning. See if you can guess who said it. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion towards one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. Now, those are famous words spoken at a difficult time by a great man, words from a speech rated as the 17th most significant in American history, words spoken at a time when race riots were spreading through the cities of America, when anger was running hot due to the death of a black man at the hands of a white man. News of that death and video footage were going viral and the crowds were on the streets. The year was 1968. The speaker was Robert Kennedy and the man who died, Martin Luther King. Robert Kennedy was calling for love to prevail in place of vengeance. He said, we've got a choice to make. You can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can be more and more polarised, filled with hatred towards one another. Or we can choose another path of understanding compassion and love. Now, of course, the question is, 52 years later, which path has been chosen? Kennedy said in his speech, let's dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. But With all the dedication we can muster, it seems like the dream of taming the savageness of man, the dream of that gentle life, is still just a dream. Where do you even start with a goal like that? Where, in the face of so much suffering and injustice, could love and forgiveness like that possibly come from? You might even find that a struggle in your own life, taming the unforgiveness when you've been done so much wrong. Taming the bitterness when you've experienced abuse or hurt as a kid or, or from a partner. Finding the capacity to let go of a hurt that's formed into a kind of a scar tissue on your personality because it's just not fair. Finding the capacity to love again when it's easier to just dwell on that animal rage. Again, pretty much the way the world works is to get even, to keep on ramping it up and amping it up until something explodes. Now look, as we've seen in 1 Peter, that's nothing new. And as Peter writes to these first century Christians, he knows they are facing all kinds of unfairness, including persecution for their faith. And the question is where, in the face of that kind of suffering and injustice and persecution, where that sort of love and forbearance and self-control could possibly come from because it's true isn't it when it comes to human nature there is a savageness that lies within a a natural inclination to just follow our desires to do what we feel like to do what comes naturally whether in violence or anger or retribution or greed or sexual lust to just take what we want when we want it peter in the letter we've been reading gives two motivations for being very different in the face of a hostile world. Two keys that should motivate change. Here's number one. 
take a look at it in the first two verses of our reading. It's the motivation to be like Jesus. It's in verse 1 and it's meant to drive everything we do in the face of injustice. Here's what's going to drive it. Follow it with me. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. This peculiarly Christian idea that our our suffering links us with Christ's suffering and that we can fortify ourselves by taking on the same attitude he had of, of not complaining, not fighting back, but willingly suffering unjustly for the benefit of others. That having received that benefit from him, we pay it forward right for wrong instead of paying back wrong for wrong. Using, in a sense, the suffering of our bodies at points like that as a reminder that we are done with sin and that human desires aren't going to master us. Not the desire for comfort, not the desire for payback, not the desire for revenge, because we are arming ourselves with the attitude of Jesus and not succumbing to the savageness that lies within. Peter paints us a picture of that kind of animal living in verses 3 and 4, what it's like living in a world chasing after pleasure and full of abuse and anger. He says, you've done enough lusting, you've done enough of the wild drinking and sex parties. You've spent enough time in the past doing what the Gentiles choose to do. You've spent enough time chasing after idols. It is time, because of Jesus, to be different. Follow in verses 3 and 4. If you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry, they're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. Now, teenagers, you can maybe pick by looking at me that it's been a while since I was at school, but it wasn't that different. I mean, I guess if you're at a high school with any kind of drug problem, the drugs might be slightly different these days. Drinking culture, not so different. Just remember times like that, you don't have to do it. But but the pressure, of course, the, the pressure now, the pressure when I was at school, the pressure to conform, so much of it came exactly like that. What do you mean you're not going to join in? As if it offends them that you're smart enough to say no, offends them that because of Jesus you'd say no. Which is exactly the same, I'd have to say, no matter what age you are. The pressure to conform with the attitudes and ambitions of the people around us and not to stand out and be different. It's actually no easier when you're older, is it? Now, look, Peter gives another super smart reason to say no to that stuff. And it's motive number two. And that is, ultimately, one day, Jesus will judge both the living and the dead. Nobody gets to skip it. Now, here are some valid reasons for missing your trial date in a Queensland court. I did some research. Medical grounds such as sickness or even an appointment of the specialist that can't be moved are usually accepted by the court. Compassionate grounds or personal bereavement are often accepted for adjourning your court date. Administrative grounds like your trial notice 
didn't arrive in time. That might be acceptable. If you are dead, no doubt at all, you'll be excused. But not in this court. There is one court that is ready to judge the living and the dead. And the one we'll give account to is the same Lord of justice who suffered unjustly himself. And Peter says that should slow you down. That's the point being made in verse 5. Take a look. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, if you want to live like that, if you want to live the untamed life of a party animal, way up where it's going to lead. One day you will be giving account to the one who judges the living and the dead. And that's Jesus. The only problem being that verse 5, which is obvious and easy to understand, leads us directly into verse 6, which isn't. And I think it's a verse actually related to the to the verses that Doug so very wisely skipped over last week because there are so many possible explanations that it's hard to land on a good one. And besides which, even when you do land on a theory, even then it's kind of complex and hard to explain. The problem is, though, this week that everything else is so obvious that I've got no real excuse for ducking the hard bit. So there's plenty of time to take a look at verse 6, which, as I said, is picking up on the weird scene from last week, chapter 3, verse 19, about resurrected Jesus going and preaching to imprisoned spirits. Uh, For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, it said back in chapter 3, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Sorry, that's in... Uh, that's our verse in chapter 4, but you can see it's kind of similar to 3.19, which is the verse last week we skipped, that after being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, here's the thing, sounds weird, I know, and here's where it gets complex, because Peter, I'm convinced at this point, is quoting a story from an old book called one Enoch, which was kind of like the Harry Potter of the ancient world, and it wasn't actually written by Enoch, the grandson of Noah at all, although it pretends to be. Now, just for you, so you don't have to, I spent most of Tuesday reading One Enoch all the way through. You can find it online if you're interested, and it's it's a fun but slightly weird book that's full of all the bits, in a sense, you ever wanted to know that the Old Testament didn't tell you, so... Someone made it up, not inspired, but speculation. Like, where did that serpent come from in the Garden of Eden? Well, of course, he's a fallen angel. You might have thought that the Bible says that. It actually never does. Where did evil spirits come from? Well, according to Enoch, from the offspring of the women who were seduced by the gods in that weird little passage back in Genesis chapter 9, and the spirits who were not locked away in the pit were sentenced to wander the earth making trouble or getting people to bow down to their idols. It's kind of like any loose ends in the Old Testament. One Enoch gives you all the backstory you ever wanted, all made up, or maybe picking up from old legends, and especially the the ripping yarn of these 20-metre giants in the time of Noah who roamed the land as the offspring of gods and women, and and, and how they're the ones who taught us metallurgy and how to propagate trees, 
and taught women how to wear makeup in their eyelids and totally messed up the world every other way they could. And then you see Enoch says their spirits are locked up, imprisoned in three underground pits, covered with sharp rocks. And the spirits of everyone who mocked God's holy ones, the people of Israel, they're thrown in as well. And they cry out for mercy. And God in this story sends righteous Enoch to proclaim to them, no, that their judgment is exactly what they deserve. And then finally, Enoch calls the son of man to come to judge them. Uh, The son of man mentioned in Daniel chapter 7 and they're extinguished in flames. End of story. Now that's the story that was put together about 200 BC with Israel under pagan rule. And you see it's still selling like hotcakes 200 years later. It's a classic and everyone in Israel knows it. Not, not reading it as scripture because it was always treated as a whole different category. Just a, just a story, just like Harry Potter, a story where evil opposition gets destroyed by the hero. And yet the tricky thing to get our heads around is that Peter, it seems, and, and the book of Jude for sure, are quoting from it with these weird little comments like the section Doug very wisely passed over last week. After being made alive, chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus, he says, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Picking up on 1 Enoch 10, but with a twist, saying it's not Enoch who proclaims judgment on the spirit world, it is resurrected Jesus. It's not Enoch who preaches judgment on the disobedient, it is resurrected Jesus. And then Enoch's son of man who judges the living and the dead, well, here's the thing, that for sure is the Lord Jesus. Which is kind of complex, partly because it might sound like Peter's endorsing this one Enoch story as if it's actually scripture. But on the other hand, and this is how I prefer to take it, it's it's maybe like me saying, just like Harry Potter stood his ground against Voldemort, so Jesus has defeated evil. Which doesn't necessarily mean I believe in Harry Potter, although maybe I do, but I certainly believe that of Jesus. See, here's Peter's point. He's made it already back in chapter 3. Jesus having gone into heaven, resurrected and at the right hand of God, it's to him angels and authorities and every evil spirit are made subject. It is to him that every knee shall bow. So in your life and behaviour, how about you be subject to him as well? The one who died for sin will ultimately judge sin. Mockers will be mocked and justice will prevail. And so Peter says, live accordingly. Suffer injustice willingly because you're waiting for his justice. Stop living like you used to live because you actually quake at the prospect of his judgment. Because as Peter says in verse 7, the end of all things is near. So therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Which brings us back to the words of Robert Kennedy back in 1968 and that dream that somehow our animal instincts could be subdued to love one another. Which is Peter's dream and prayer as well with those 
two big motives in mind, the example of Jesus and the judgment of Jesus. He says, with all that in mind, above all, love. Just read his words again and take them in. Above all, he says, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. A love that forgives, a love that blots out the the wrongs you've been done. Trouble is, I fear America's not going to find that love because they're looking in all the wrong places. But I wonder about us, when when you've been wronged, how long do you harbour it? It's hard, I know, but you see, look at Jesus who's covered over your sins and then maybe it's not quite so hard. Hurtful words, hurtful deeds, times you've been undervalued or overlooked. Love covers over a multitude of sins. If you're actually going to be a loving person, that is what it means. That's what it takes. Plus those other practicalities that flow out in verses 9 to 11. Serving God by serving others. Serving God just by using the gifts he's given you and the words he's given you and the the strength he's given you for the good of other people. And so God will be praised, verse 11, through Jesus Christ, who gets all the glory and power now and forever. Amen. Easy, eh? Well, it's not. And it's especially not in a time like COVID, a time when hospitality, for example, just hasn't been an option. When we haven't even been able to see people, let alone love people, which means it's taken creativity for for someone like Sandy Schatzer to do ring and run cookie drops for the members of a growth group. What about now, the next phase? Because I reckon for lots of us introvert types or us sleepy pyjama types, Church has been so much easier these last couple of months, hasn't it? No need to drive anywhere, no no need to see anyone, no need to serve anyone, no need to hand out books and smile and put on the urn and make coffees and clean carpets and all those little ways we serve one another. Oh, let's just do Zoom church until Jesus comes. Better still, don't even say hi to anyone on screen. Don't stay for the chat time, just consume. So tempting, isn't it? And yet Peter says, look at Jesus and don't just consume, but love. Don't just use your gifts for you, use them for everyone else. Don't just use your energy for you, it's the strength God provides. And he's providing it so you can serve, which is a radical perspective, isn't it? As we move towards regathering over these coming months, There are going to be all kinds of opportunities to use that energy in new ways. There are going to be all kinds of opportunities to make yourself uncomfortable for the sake of serving others. Ways that God's got ready for you that are just right for the gifts and the time and the energy he's so generously given you. It's kind of exciting and kind of challenging, but that's Christian living, isn't it? As by looking to Jesus and Through the work of the Spirit, our selfish, savage natures are bit by bit put to death at the foot of the cross. We gradually grow more like him. 